Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 61, the first portion. The second one is Luke 4. You may want to turn to Luke 4 and keep your finger in the page 996 in your pew Bibles. If that's, uh, we'll read that second. And then first the Isaiah 61 passage on page 2724, 724 in the pew Bible. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. And then in Luke chapter 4, page 996, we'll start at verse 16, just to set the scene a little bit. This occurs after Jesus had been tempted in the wilderness by Satan and then returned to the Galilee. So Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. 
he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we thank you for these passages that remind us of the goals that you have set for us and particularly in our care for those around us who are facing struggles, difficult difficulties in life. Father, we just pray that you'd give us the mind of Messiah that we might want to relieve the, the difficulties of the poor and the, the spirits that are depressed and the people who are chained by various addictions and sometimes actual bondage. And Father, we just pray that you'll give us that spirit of love and power that Messiah has, that we will do our part as well. Father, we just pray for Pastor Mark as he comes to bring the message that you have set on his mind and in his heart. We pray that you'll, Holy Spirit will give him the words that, that will be needed by us to, to hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ron. I'd like to begin this morning by both acknowledging and thanking Pastor Yuri for his bold, brave, thoroughly biblical, faithfully Christian, and clear gospel message last Sunday. Preachers rarely agree with every word another preacher speaks, but it was pretty close. Not that I would say what he said, but I had nothing to say about what he said, except good things. But it was hard, I know, both to deliver and to receive. Hard to receive, I know, especially for those many of us who have friends, family members, neighbors, fellow students, co-workers, and bosses who live somewhere outside the biblical Christian gospel, sexual binaries of male and female, women and men, wives and husbands, even boys and girls. The world is definitely flowing away from God, away from God's word, away from God's will, and away from God's ways in many in various ways. While this has always been true and since humanity's fall into sin, there can be no doubt that the flow is accelerating and none more than in the area of sexual identity. We're often at a loss what to say or what to do, how to say it or how to do it, even with the best intentions and swelling love and compassion in our hearts, we might wonder if we should say or do anything. Maybe we should just sink into a live and let live posture. This brings us to why it's even harder to deliver messages such as Pastor Yuri delivered last Sunday. We preachers are fallen and frail human beings with an impossible task which is to speak truth into the realities, the relationships, and the lives of other fallen and frail human beings, and to do so with any bit of credibility or authority at all. This is an impossible task, and yet it's ours. 
the madding crowd rightly retorts, who are you to say anything to us? What sort of sin are you hiding behind that veneer of piety? Who appointed you judge of me? And quite right, I don't have anything to say. I do have my own sin to deal with, disqualifying me from judging anyone, even myself, it turns out, according to the scriptures. And I have not been appointed judge of anyone for anything, including myself. Here's how Paul, by the Holy Spirit, puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 5. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. That's a very important line. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, namely before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his or her commendation from God. But here's the even harder point. I have been, Yuri has been, indeed we as a local church of the Lord Jesus Christ have been appointed to preach good news. The good news of God in Christ Jesus is bad news without his intervention and faith. Friends, this is precisely why it's so incredibly, historically, dynamically, and existentially vital to stick with the scriptures in both our words and in our deeds at all times and in all places. Otherwise, we're just making it up, literally. We're going our own way and we'll soon be lost, just wandering around in the wilderness, wondering how we got here and how we get home before we die of thirst or predation. Answer, repentance, and renewed faith. So it's true, Yuri and I have not a thing to say worth listening to. But God in Christ Jesus has much to say on any and every topic we might bring to him. And his word, that is God's word in Christ Jesus and in the Bible, is life and truth to all who hear and believe. Don't miss that, all who hear and believe it is truth and life. The best thing I've heard or read in a long while came across Facebook. Yeah, I, I know, I, I wish it wasn't true, but it is. It came from my Facebook friend, Judy Silva, when she sent this. Jesus didn't eat with sinners and tax collectors because he wanted to appear inclusive, tolerant, and accepting. He ate with them to call them to a changed and fruitful life, to die to self and live for him. His call is to a transformation of life, not affirmation 
of identity. That's true for us as well. I used to tell my church in Iowa that was a Southern Baptist church that we are much more concerned with being biblical Christians than we are being good Southern Baptists. And that is probably just one of the reasons, I didn't get fired, but that's one of the reasons that you know, we were never a company person and then finally we made our way to Canada, escaping as it were. And while this is not exactly the topic of my sermon this morning, we note that God has much to say in the Bible beginning with the reason and the way he has created us, namely in his sovereign goodness and likeness to bear his image and to represent him on the earth. From Genesis, the book of beginnings, we read in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, then God said, oh, it would help if I push the right button. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all the earth. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Finally, following Yuri, I want to say a word of care, caution, and compassion that we all need today and that we'll need even more in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead. Every person who's ever been born, human beings, I mean, has been created, at least in God's sovereign intention and in his design for us, as well as in our individual and shared human potentiality, we have been created, every one of us, in God's own image to bear his likeness and to represent him on the earth, every single one of us. Now, it's true that most people who ever lived on the earth have done so fulfilling a lesser purpose than that, perhaps not even being aware of it. But still, we are to relate to all persons, no matter their national, cultural, familial, sexual, or political identities, as human beings with equal worth and value, leaving all judgment to God because he is the only truly righteous and impartial judge. This is why, immediately after the clearest word in the Bible concerning God's order in his design of human beings, male and female, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, continues by warning against judging the sin, sexual or otherwise, of others before we deal with our own. If we don't deal with our own sin within our own selves and within our own congregation, we disqualify ourselves from judging anyone. The better course, the better thing, is not to judge at all. And it is possible to speak truth without pronouncing judgment. Romans 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I'm going to pause here for just a second and give you a personal testimony. There was a time in my ministry when I read these verses and I excused myself from them. I've never been a homosexual. I've never been a part of a homosexual relationship. 
I've never committed, so far as I know, a homosexual act. So when I read, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things, I could say, in my narrower vision, I've never done that, so I must be able to judge. What is in view here is all sexual sin. In fact, all sin altogether. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? As we relate to other human beings created in God's image, we live and we speak the truth as revealed in the biblical Christian gospel. The Holy Spirit giving us understanding and empowering us to both live it and speak it in faith, hope, and love in God and Christ Jesus. Now, so far as it relates to pride, I'll spell it, P-R-I-D-E. I'll even put it in capital letters, P-R-I-D-E. It's instructive to note that there is not one word of affirmation in the Bible concerning the term, the concept, the various connotations, the meanings, and the expressions of pride. Not one word of affirmation. Only warnings against. Indeed, pride is altogether abhorrent to and inimical to God. Pride deceived the devil and up to a third of the angelic host into rebelling against the one true, living, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God. Pride is the common characteristic to all falls from grace, whether temporal or eternal. So pride is not something that we'd want to promote or to be a part of if we're followers of Jesus. There is an important distinction we should make in our relations, in our outreach, and in our welcome. There is a striking distinction between activists and individuals. The goals of activists are winning converts, waging a cultural battle, and imposing his, her, or their values on all. But most often, for the individual, and perhaps for some hearing me now, the goals of most individuals are working through who they are, who they should be, and where they should belong. We can gladly and should always gladly be open to that. Brother James gives us the bottom line on pride. But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore it, scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore. And he's speaking to Christians. Submit ourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This, by the way, is the clearest, simplest biblical strategy for effective spiritual warfare that I know of. 
It's got three points. In humility, submit ourselves to God as individuals, as families, and as a church. Secondly, in humility, resist the devil as individuals, as families, and as a church. Step three, in humility, keep on submitting to God and resisting the devil until he flees from us. So thanks to Pastor Yuri for having the courage and the faith to obey the Holy Spirit's leading all the way through. My thanks also to you, the congregation, for having created and continued to sustain an atmosphere and environment in which God's biblical word in the gospel can be preached, heard, believed on, and lived to the best of our understanding, and for almost 80 years. Let's close out this first part of the ministry of God's word for this morning in prayer. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you, just because it's on the top of my mind right now, because I just said it, for the testimony of Bethesda Church of being truly a Bible church. That's not a title. That's a description. That we have, for nearly 80 years, since July of 1944, upheld the authority of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, the mandate of Scripture on the lives of humanity, including our own. This is not us saying one thing and doing another. This is us believing that God's Word and Holy Scripture is authoritative for our whole lives and everything necessary for salvation and a good bit more. You have sustained us now, Lord, for these 79 going on 80 years. And we thank you for that and we pray that you would continue to do so. And there will continue to be a lighthouse on this corner for decades to come. For anyone to come in and hear your word being preached and taught the gospel being proclaimed, and the Holy Spirit changing us. Thank you, Lord, for this morning, for this opportunity for us to continue to grow in your grace. And thank you also for Yuri, for his uh, courage last week, for his listening to your prompting and just simply responding uh, by faith in obedience. May we have more of that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turning now to our focal text for this morning, Isaiah 61. I'd like to have you turn there if you would, if you aren't already there, whether in your pew Bibles or in the Bible that you brought along with you. I'd like to review the central truth of our message for this morning, which is also our central truth for next week, as this is a two-part sermon. Once again, it's printed there in the inside upper left corner of your bulletin, but here it is one more time. Jesus Christ is the promise. He is the pioneer, and he is the perfecter of God's good, sovereign, good and sovereign intentions, both in creation and in redemption, both for Israel and for the church. Now, the good news for the timekeepers among us is that we're really only looking at verse 
1 of Isaiah 61. Also a few verses in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll return to it next week. The bad news is that those verses are longer than most verses in characters and in depth. As Pastor Yuri reminded us last Sunday, it's important to remember that Isaiah 61 comes in a particular context, both textually and theologically. Scholars section off both the text and the theology of Isaiah variously, but I'm more interested in the theology today. Isaiah 61 drops right into the middle of a major prophetic theme concerning God's kingdom, both historically, that is at the time of its writing, at the time that Isaiah received the prophecy, and future, meaning us here today, and then also essentially the future that we will share together in eternity with the Lord. And that future kingdom will be populated, is populated, first in the historical by Israel, second in the next historical step by the church, and then thirdly drawn from the peoples of all nations over all the earth and finally together as one. And Messiah, the anointed one of God, the holy one of Israel, the son of David, yes, Jesus the Christ, will himself secure, he has now secured by the sacrifice of his body and resurrection, and he continues to secure by the power of his spirit, a people. A people to himself. A people for himself. And a people for his glory, once divided and separate, but then in the future kingdom, unified and whole. And the first point of the sermon today is the first half of verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So says the Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah as already accomplished. Check that out now. Don't miss this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Speaking truth and expectation, while also also looking forward into a glorious future, both for himself and especially for God's people, Israel and the church, which he will secure for himself. One of the most remarkable and beautiful aspects of this declaration, the spirit of the Lord God is upon God's anointed, which is me, not me, but the me in the text, is that the Trinity, the triune God, is visibly involved. Often we must piece together passages about the Godhead, the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from various places in Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament, but not here. In just one verse, undoubtedly we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three represented together, acting in unified purpose and united in singular action, First, through God's anointed one, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, but also in and through his future people, which we'll see in verse 4 and the rest of Isaiah 61. There we'll ask again, who are the they and who are the you? And today, perhaps, the question is, who is the me? Now, you may think I'm reading into the text quite a bit here, and, and many would, but when we look at this text with God the Father God the Son, and God the Spirit in view, 
maybe not so much reading into it. We have two explicit, distinct, unmistakable, and different references to God himself in just this first verse. And we do well to ask why. Why two different references? What are each of these references trying to tell us? First, the Lord God. And God, you'll notice, is all in upper cases because that is the word in the text, Yahweh. So we have here Adonai Yahweh, the Lord God. Actually, two references to God in one. Followed in the second half by the Lord or Yahweh. We have an additional implied reference here in this first verse to the Spirit who is God and two explicit references to me, that is Messiah, anointed one, Jesus, God the Son. Okay, before we go on, let me confess something. I, I do admit that we are condensing a whole lot of Bible into these statements, but I don't have the time and you don't have the seating capacity to go into much more detail than I'm doing here this morning. But we've, the good news is we've taught through many of these things uh, not so long ago and, and in an ongoing basis, so I don't think this will be completely new or foreign to us. I have done a bit of, or quite a bit of book work this week, so I hope it's helpful as we can continue to consider the implications, especially the future implications of the historical work and the word of God in Christ Jesus for his people, both Israel and the church, foretold here in Isaiah 61 and following. And this first verse gives us both an obligation and an opportunity to understand as best we can the God who is, as Francis Schaeffer put it so well, what he has done and what he is doing to bring glory to himself in the fullness of God and future glory to his people. So as we look at our text, verse one, we'll take the references in order as, as you'll see and um, we've got them up on the uh, screen already. The first one is obvious, the spirit, ruach. That's ruach in uh, Hebrew. You'll see it there in Hebrew. Um, it, this means wind or spirit, depending on the context. And here, obviously, it is the spirit. And it is an implied reference to God, the Holy Spirit. So that's the first reference that we have here, verse 61, first two words, the spirit. Secondly, connected to the spirit, it is the spirit. He is the spirit of the Lord God. Adonai Yahweh is upon me. So Adonai Yahweh, there you've got the, the, the Hebrew there as well. For some reason, it wouldn't let me put a space between the two terms. Um, but this is a reference to the Lord God, and it's an explicit reference to God in this text. So two in the first line, or three if you want to count Adonai Yahweh as two references, which it really is. Then we have in the second line, Aleh, which means upon me, Allah is upon, just the, the word upon, and then you put the me into the, into the word, it changes the, it's called inflected, it changes the form of the word to have hidden, almost hidden in it, upon a, a, an individual but a personal pronoun, and that is me, Allah upon me. And that's an implied reference, obviously, uh, to God, and we know this to be Jesus because he says so. 
in, in Luke chapter 4. Then Yahweh, we are familiar with uh, the Lord in the upper, uppercase uh, type. Uh, and this is Yahweh, an explicit reference to God again. Could this be God the Son? Um, it's not 100% consistent with the reading, uh, but it seems that there is a very close connection between Yahweh and Jesus in much of the Old Testament. And so Jesus is here, he's in the me, and uh, we're for sure that the triune God, the Trinity, is involved here and shows up here from the very first verse. And finally, OT, which is from Ata, Ata means I, um, or, or rather me, and OT is the inflected form of it uh, when it's an objective case, when it's the direct object of the sentence. Uh, and it means me, and there's another implied reference, of course, to Jesus. So first up, the, the spirit is pretty clear. Ruach in Hebrew, either wind or spirit, depending on the context. And we know that the Lord is the spirit, and the spirit is the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Then we have the spirit of the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, which would likely almost certainly be a reference to God the Father, though it's not quite 100% correlation. Adonai Yahweh in Hebrew, meaning Lord God, and this is an explicit, unmistakable reference to God. Then the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Who is me? But a reference to Messiah, literally the anointed one, the son of David and Jesus Christ, God's eternal son. And next we have a standalone but explicit reference to Yahweh because Yahweh has anointed. And who is the one anointing his servant? Whether Isaiah in Israel's prophetic history or a future Messiah. Now remember the dynamic fulfillment of scripture or of prophecy. So probably Isaiah is saying to a crowd that he may be preaching to, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and it also has a prophetic fulfillment to come in the person of Jesus. How do we know? Because Jesus said so. He is the one chosen for this personal, now also but future anointing by Yahweh. And finally, we have the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because, because Yahweh has anointed me in this one verse in just these two short lines, we have five references to the three in one God. Spirit, the Lord God, me, the Lord, me again, and maybe even the sixth one, the Lord God, if we count that as two. This is where we turn to Luke chapter four and Jesus' own declaration that he is the me. So please turn with me quickly, forward in time and space to Luke's gospel chapter four. We'll start there at verse 17, since Ron has already read it and gave us uh, just a, a bit of the context, 30 seconds of context, which is very helpful. Jesus stood up and re read, and in verse 17 it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Quote, now, the, the, the quote here is a little condensed, and it's probably because it comes from the Septuagint which is the Old Testament in the Greek language. Um, so you'll, you'll see some differences, here's some differences. It's a little shorter 
than what we just read in uh, Isaiah 61, and that's probably the reason why it comes from the Septuagint. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22, I want you to note, I'm gonna read the next few verses. I just want you to note the speed with which the people change in their opinion of Jesus. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there are, were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came upon all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their own town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The common characteristic to those two people, Zarephath and Naaman, they were Gentiles. They weren't Jewish. And this is important for our understanding of that passage. If nothing else, those last several verses should prepare us by reminding us of the frail and fickle nature of human beings, especially when confronted with unbelief and sin. They hailed Jesus for his gracious insight right up to the point they didn't disagree with him, when he didn't coddle them but provoke them even, the point at which following his teaching might cost them their religion and the point at which they'd have to become true worshipers. And this is all very helpful if we can see it if we can accept it, if we can apply it, because we can know that all the resources and all the wisdom and all the strength of all the fullness and being of God, all the will and all the goodness and all the grace and all the mercy and all the love of God in Christ Jesus are all always and immediately available to us to do what he intends to do. At every moment. And what is that? What does God in Christ Jesus intend to do? What is it that he has committed himself to? What does the spirit of the Lord God who was, who was and is upon him mean to accomplish through him and by faith 
extended to and in and through us, his people, in this place and time. Now, we'll just be able to introduce these themes this morning, but next Sunday, we'll unpack them all through, the, through verse 4, where we'll, where we'll see that the future work of Messiah, the work of Jesus Christ, is enabled by the Spirit in and through his people, yes, both Israel and the church. So the second point of the message, even as we're finishing, is the rest of verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. For what? For what has the Spirit of the Lord who is upon him because the Lord has anointed him? For what? Well, that's what the rest of this section, verses 1 through 4, is all about, and it's also what this chapter, Isaiah 61, is about too. Much of it coming much of it here now, or it is still to come. Let's look very briefly from verse one. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Why or for what? To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they, here's the first they, so you want to ask the question, who is they? We'll talk about that next week. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So looking forward to next week, we'll finish out through verse 4, and we'll spend time... What, what does this mean that the Lord has been anointed by the Holy Spirit and perhaps in another way by a physical anointing as kings and priests and prophets would have been done? Uh, but for what? That's our question for next week. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. We are so thankful that you did not leave us to figure it out ourselves. And you didn't just give us a general word. You gave us a very specific and personal word. The word of your son, Jesus Christ, who is, was, and forever will be the word of God. Help us, Lord, to understand both with our minds and with our hearts what it is that you have done, what it is that you are doing, and what it is that you would have us to join you to do in the future.
I pray your blessing upon each person here who is here, every family represented, Lord. I pray that you would continue to grace us with your presence and with your power to live as your people in our time and place. And now as we transition into sharing Holy Communion together and with you, we pray also that you would join us in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like us to close by seeing this word. It's a familiar word, but it's especially, I think, uh, poignant for this morning. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer, most translations say author, the actual word in the text is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the one who blazes the trail in front of us, the one who completes it behind us, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Amen, Lord Jesus, Jesus come. Lord, thank you for this word, this assembly, this time in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to go before us and behind us be the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next time. Thank you for coming.